the fall of David. A fall is never a good thing. Never a good thing. And it had been a a good 15 years since I had been on a baseball field when this last fall I decided to to go out and join our co-ed softball team. And, uh, you know, I was out there for a few games in and, and feeling pretty good about myself. I at least made contact with the ball. Now, I wasn't hitting the ball over the fence or anything like that, but I was doing all right for myself. And, and three or four games in, I can't remember how many, but I, I got up to bat. I had already been on base twice that night, and, and I hit a ground ball to the shortstop. And in my mind, I was thinking, I'm going to beat out this ground ball to the shortstop because co-ed softball in Lake Forest matters and I need to get this base hit. So I took off out of the batter's box as fast as I could, which is not as fast as I probably felt like I was running in my mind. But still, I, I was making good progress. I said, you know what, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna beat out this throw to first base and I'll be on SportsCenter later, right? And as, as I'm getting close to the base, I, I hit the bag, beat the throw, by the way, I was safe, and I stumble and I felt my body weight all of a sudden shift from a center of balance, right, to, to my body weight lurching forward over the front of my feet. And we've all been there. It's the feeling of falling. And as I was going down in, in the split seconds that I had there, uh, in that moment where you're actually airborne and thinking to yourself, this is not going to end well, I had one of two choices. I could put my hands out to brace my fall and probably break my wrists, or I could try to just tuck into it and, and kind of gracefully roll through the fall and pop up on my feet on the other end, like I used to be able to do 15 years ago. And this was a rude awakening to the fact that my body is older than I think it is, because when I went to go do the turn and the roll, I didn't get all the way over and my full body weight landed on my clavicle and there was a pop that was audible and that, that I felt. And it uh, turns out I, I broke my clavicle in this fall. Now, it was a, a small fracture, but still it was not fun. Um, drove to the emergency room with my son in the car with pretty bad pain, so that probably wasn't very smart. Uh, but, but falls are not a good thing. But when we fall, it's, it's never instantaneous, is it? We're never standing there and then all of a sudden on the ground going, whoa, what just happened? How did I get from on my feet, totally upright, to now I'm, I'm on the ground? A fall is a gradual thing. It may be a somewhat fast, gradual thing, but it's still a process. There's a progression that takes place. Just like when I hit that bag and started going down, I have that process of deciding how am I going to fall? How am I going to hit the ground? How can I hopefully preserve my body on the way down? And in some ways, that's what makes a fall so tragic and so, uh, so horrendous for us, is when we're going down, we're conscious that we're going down, and we're conscious that this is not going to feel good when I hit the bottom. But physical falls aren't the only thing that are a progression. Physical falls aren't the only thing that are gradual. Moral falls, moral failures, like the one that we see from King David in our text tonight, those are also a progression. That's also a process. That's also gradual. We don't wake up and walk straight into sin just out of the blue. At least not typically we don't. Usually there's a lot of things that have happened along the way. The fall has begun a while back such that when we finally find ourselves actually engaging in the act of sin, it's the outcome of a process. And that's what makes sin so tragic. 
It's not just the act itself. In our text with King David and Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, it's not just the adultery. It's not just the conspiracy. It's not just the murder that makes this passage, this text so tragic. It's the entirety of the progression of David rebelling against God, making unwise decisions that leaves us shaking our heads and feeling such grief and such mourning over the fall of somebody again that we had tried and, and to this point been holding up as an example after whom we should pattern our lives and emulate. Well, we don't want to emulate David as we see him in Second Samuel chapter 11, but to recap, if you weren't with us last time or it's been a few weeks, so we probably need to refresh. Chapter 10, you recall, David was at war, wasn't he? He was at war against the Ammonites and the Ammonites had tried to, re- to recruit the Syrians to help them excuse me, help them, but it wasn't going well. And in the end of chapter 10, David had gone out against the Ammonites and he was a king at war. He was a king on the battlefield. He was a king where he should be with his troops and he was engaging in the battle. But then we come to chapter 11 and in chapter 11, it opens up and it says, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. So springtime, the winter is past, the rains are past. This is the time when when battles picked back up in ancient Israel. And normally the king would go with his troops, but this time David just sends Joab. He sends his general. Maybe this is David thinking uh, too highly of himself or too highly of his troops or feeling like he's got this thing conquered. He's got this thing won. They don't need his input. But David sends Joab instead of going out himself. And the reason a king would go out, well, whereas today we don't have our, our president leading our troops out in battle, even though he's the commander in chief. During this time, there were no direct lines of communication between the palace and the front. Pastor Mike has talked about the, the messengers that used to be sent from the battlefield back with good news or with news of what happened in the, the battles and what happened in the wars. And so the king would go out because the king was the chief military strategist. David was a man of war. David was a man of valor. And so Joab would have consulted with David on the battle plans. And so David wanted to be on the field to have a hand in what was going on and to direct his troops. That was common for kings of that day. And David should have been with his troops. But it says in the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, the text says, but David remained at Jerusalem. That word remained is from a Hebrew word that means to sit, to dwell, to rest, And it has the idea of being comfortable, being complacent, being secure, not worried about anything. Again, David's mindset is, Joab can handle this. I don't need to go. I'm going to send him. I'm going to stay back here and tend to the matters that I can tend to here with my administration in Jerusalem. But unfortunately, by failing in this regard, David was plowing the ground of his heart and planting the seeds of sin that would soon follow. We pick up in verse 2. While David was not at war, but at home, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. See if the pointer is going to work. It will. I I apologize for the size of this picture. It's in the ESV study Bible, which is commenting on this text. So if you have the ESV study Bible uh, online or you have the hard copy, this is one of the maps that it will refer you to from this very passage. And the reason is, is because up here 
in the, the top, this is where David's palace would have been in, in Jerusalem. And down the hill would have been the rest of the city. So David, as he goes out to the roof of his palace, had an elevated viewpoint. He had an elevated perspective. And it says that while he was there on the roof, he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And it says the woman was very beautiful. Again, David never should have been at home during this time, but yet he was. And now he finds himself on the roof and he finds himself looking down and seeing this woman who is bathing. Well, first thing we need to ask was, was it a sin for David to be on the roof? No, it wasn't a sin for David to be on the roof. This was common. This was not abnormal. It was normal during the, the, the hotter parts of the day to look for an area to be out in the cool breezes to, to try to, to cool off or just to, to go up and, and rest and to walk around. This was not abnormal for him to be on the roof. He didn't go up there thinking, I'm going to go spy out a naked lady in the tub and see what happens. He just went up to the roof as he had probably done numerous, numerous times before. But this time he does see a woman bathing. He does, does see Bathsheba who was bathing. But the text doesn't say that he just sees her and then looks away. The text says he sees her and he notices that she was very beautiful. It's interesting because back in 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 3, David uses that word beautiful, although it's a different Hebrew word, to describe Abigail. And the word that he uses to describe Abigail's beauty back in 1 Samuel chapter 25 is a word that had to do with her character with her godliness, with her personality. But the word that's used here in the text, the Hebrew word for beautiful here in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is a word that strictly has to do with the physical appearance of Bathsheba. And so David's looking and he notices this naked lady bathing on the rooftop. And rather than have what I used to tell my high school students all the time, bouncy eyes, right? When you go out to the beach, right? We can all relate to that, man. You go to the beach with your family. You need to make sure that your eyes are ready to bounce because you never know what they're going to land on. Otherwise, David lingers. He locks on. He notices. He sees and he stays and he gazes. And that gaze turns into a lust, See, these are the, the moments where the beginnings of the rest of David's fall, that, that moral failure that we're talking about, were growing. David's affording his flesh the opportunity to grow, and he's affording this sin in his heart, as Jesus would even say in Matthew chapter 5, which we've just read recently in our daily Bible reading, that lust begins in the heart, right? That, that if you've gazed at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her. So David is already, according to the word of God, guilty of committing adultery with Bathsheba before he ever even inquires of who she is. So he gazes at her, and he inquires in verse 3, David sent and asked, he inquired, he sought information about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now David's object of lust had a name. And not only did she have a name, notice that so did her husband. This was not a normal way to describe somebody at this time. You wouldn't describe who their spouse was. If this was a, a, a regular situation and David said, hey, who's that? Somebody would say, well, that's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, period, end of story. But this servant, probably picking up on what David was driving at and what David was thinking, wants to interject with the king to remind him what he's doing and, and to slow him down from making a decision that he might regret and that might not go bad just for him, but potentially for all of Israel as well because of how God would respond to this. 
And so the servant says, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, as soon as David heard the words, the wife of, that should have stopped him in his tracks. But especially after he heard the word, the name Uriah the Hittite. If we go all the way forward to the end almost of First Samuel or Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 29 is recounting all of the different mighty men that were known to David, that were valuable to David. And some of the, the top 30 of them. And among them is listed who? Uriah the Hittite. So here's one of the, the top 30 soldiers in David's enti- entire army. You think he knew the name Uriah the Hittite? I'm guessing he knew the name Uriah the Hittite. And so now what David is looking at now is he's got this woman and he's lusted after her already in his heart as he's on top of the roof. He's now then inquired and pursued the avenue of his sin even further by saying, hey, who is she? And then he's found out that she has a name. So now she's not just an object. She's become personal. And then what's more, he finds out that she's married. And then he finds out that she's married to one of his valiant warriors, a soldier who was at that time fighting a war on his behalf and risking his life on his behalf. And yet, does any of that stop David? No. No, it doesn't. Why? Because our sin can blind us so that we just don't care anymore. If we give fertile ground, if we plow the hearts of, of uh, plow our, our hearts and our minds and our, our souls to commit sin, there's going to be a breaking point where we get to where all of a sudden we no longer care what anyone has to say. We're so consumed by our flesh and consumed by our passions, consumed by our lust. And I'm not just talking sexually here. This could be dealing with something with your integrity at work. This could be dealing with your wife at home. This could be dealing with your children. This could be anger, whatever it may be. There's, there's a point, there's a breaking point where our, our sin and our flesh is, is so fast and furious within us that we don't care what anybody has to say. We're going to go full bore towards fulfilling it and satisfying it regardless. And that's what David does. Verse four, David sent messengers and took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Says now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, probably her menstrual cycle. She was bathing as it was required by the Old Testament law, and that'll come into play later on. Then she returned to her house. So this is the full explosion of David's sin that began when he decided to stay home from battle. That was laying the kindling. And then his walk on the roof stacked the logs, and his lingering gaze struck the match, and his inquiring after her set the match to the fuel, and so his lust was free to burst into full flame. See, sin is, is not instantaneous. David didn't just wake up and all of a sudden there was a naked Bathsheba in his bed with him. It was a process. It was many decisions that he made to get from point A to point B. This is why people say when somebody falls, they never fall far. They never fall far. Yes, sometimes from the, the outside, when we hear of a a pastor who's fallen, or when we hear of a political figure or a public figure who has some grotesque and heinous sin that is exposed, we can be surprised because we don't know them. But if we knew the intimate details of their life, we wouldn't be surprised. Because again, sin is something that builds upon itself. It's point number one for us tonight. It's this. We need to recognize the progression of sin. 
Recognize the progression of sin. Again, we think of falling down physically. We're never going to say, I don't know what happened. I was on my feet. Now I'm on the ground. Well, I, I, have, I can't explain it. There's, a, there's a, a process there. I tripped. I tripped over my shoelaces. I stumbled over that, that curb. I, I tripped on a base, running the bases. There's, there's a process whereby we can say, this is what happened to cause me to go from being upright and erect to now being on the ground. It's the same thing with, with igniting a fire, right? We can't go home on a cold night and just open up the fireplace and go fire, right? There's, there's a process that's involved in, in putting the fuel in and, and lighting the match and putting the match to the fuel and seeing the, the fire ignite. And so it is with sin in our lives. We can make decisions like David had made where we incubate sin. We create these safe and fertile environments for sin to grow unchecked and to thrive, Sometimes these decisions are subtle. We don't necessarily even understand or realize that we're setting ourselves up for sin. But other times, they're calculated moves that we make. Knowing that if I make this decision, if I plan this way, if I set up my schedule this way, it's going to put me in a position where I can gratify the desires of my flesh. I can sin. So how do we avoid some of these things? What can recognizing the progression of our our sin do for us? Some things just practically to do that might help us. Number one, if you're married, go to bed with your wife. I I would say make that a a non-negotiable routine. Whether she stays up typically later than you do or you stay up later than than she does, insist that the two of you go to bed together. It doesn't mean that you both have to fall asleep asleep together, but it's a safe thing to do to, to go to bed with your wife. Second, if there's nothing on TV, turn it off, right? Honestly, I mean, I, and I'm guilty of this. Sometimes I'm just like, but, but what's on ESPN 17? Oh, look at that. The Cornhole Championship's on. Uh, guys, I, this is, I'm shamed, ashamed to admit this. I've watched probably a good 10 minutes of the National Cornhole Championship on ESPN. Yeah, it, it exists. It's there. I wouldn't encourage you to watch it. If there's nothing on TV, turn it off. Not because you're, you're necessarily going to fall into immoral and sexual sin by watching something you shouldn't, but it's a waste of time, right? Safeguard yourself. Don't put yourself in the way of sin. Get those things out of there. Install safeguards, speaking of which. And have accountability. And, and again, this is more for more than just pornography. This is for more than just the sexual purity element of things. Uh, put things on that are going to guard how much time you're spending online, how much time you're spending on the internet. Some of this may be, guys, if, if you struggle to, to, to put the phone down when you go home, then make your wife your, your accountability on that and some other men as well. But when you go home, that that phone goes away. Um, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, Another thing that you might need to do in order to avoid engaging in the process of sin is avoiding topics of conversation. If you know that there's certain topics of conversation that are going to entice you towards sin, whether that's uh, because of of something immoral or whether that's because it's going to create in you a a bitterness or an an anger, uh, put that off. You don't need to give your opinion on the most recent political development if that's going to cause you to be angry against a brother in your heart or a sister in your heart. Uh, next, uh, don't drive that way home from work or wherever. If there's a particular place, geog- geographical place, and for some of you there is, that, that will tempt you. Maybe that's a bar. Maybe that's something else that, that you've struggled with before. Don't avoid that place at all costs, even if it's going to take you an extra 10 minutes to get home if you don't go that way. Take the extra 10 minutes. Don't put yourself in the way of sin. Uh, avoid downtime and isolation. 
avoid downtime and isolation. Is it a sin to have downtime? No, it's not. But if that downtime will quickly lead you to begin plotting and thinking about how you can sin, then make yourself as busy as you possibly can. There's plenty of things that, that we can make ourselves busy with. And then finally, pray. And I don't throw that one on there as, a, as an add-on. I throw that one on there at the end so that I can really emphasize that one. Pray and ask for God to reveal the blind spots in your life. Those things in your life that are, are the subtle things that you don't, the, that are not calculated, but that are the subtle things that lead to sin. Again, I don't think David stayed home from war thinking, well, this is going to let me commit adultery. But yet it, it did open the door for that. It paved the way for that. So pray for God to reveal those things and for God to protect you uh, from making those decisions as well. Again, sin doesn't just happen out of the blue. We continue on in our text, verse 5, And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is not good. This is not what David wanted to hear, but think about the amount of time that must have passed at this point. There's no clear blue like CVS store down the road for Bathsheba to go, you know what, I, I, I'm a few days late, I may go pick up one of those pregnancy tests. I don't know how long it would have taken in ancient Israel to, for a woman to determine that she was pregnant, but this could have been anywhere from a few weeks to a few months that took place between the, the initial act of sin with sleeping with Bathsheba and then hearing from her, hey, uh, David, that night, um, one night with the king, uh, hey, uh, there's a, an extra package on the way for that. And you wonder, okay, so what was David feeling in the meantime? Was he feeling guilt over his sin? Or was he thinking I had gotten away for, with it? Was he even mindful at all of his encounter? Was he spending more time up on the roof? I mean, these are all conjecture. We don't know. The text doesn't say. But we do know that he finds out from her, hey, you know what? I'm pregnant. And then all of a sudden, David's uh, cover-up mentality comes into play. In verse 6, David sends word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked jo how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. So he's got this front that he's putting out there. Like he's concerned for, jo for Uriah's opinion of things. And he's, he's asking Uriah, so how's everything going? In the meantime, he's going, okay, how much wine am I going to have to give this guy so that he'll go sleep with his wife and I'll get off. I'm fine. I'm not worried about this anymore. He says, hey, you know what? You should go down and enjoy your wife. You've been out fighting. You've been out battling. You should go enjoy Bathsheba and be with her, thinking to himself, you know, if he sleeps with her, then we can just say that the baby is his and, and nobody has to be any wiser. The problem is Uriah has more integrity than David does. David is trying to cover up his sin. And now we see the, the, the progression of sin that we've talked about in point one carried even further now because in the wake of his sin David should have immediately gone in confession and repentance to the Lord and, and asked for forgiveness and we know the rest of the story but right here right now he should have done that but that's not what he did he tries to cover up his sin he tries to to cover up his guilt Uriah said to David in verse 11 the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in tents and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And he stays in the king's courtyard with his servants rather than going down to his wife. This is integrity. This is the foil of David in this te text. The, the hero of this text in 2 Samuel chapter 11 is Uriah, not David. So David 
again, presented another opportunity now, not just in the immediate wake of his sin with Bathsheba, should he felt the weight of conviction and confessed and repented, not just after finding out that Bathsheba was pregnant, should he have confessed and repented, but now, again, he's trying to cover up, and his cover-up fails. He should have again gotten the message, this is not right, there's another opportunity to confess and repent, but he continues to dig himself deeper and deeper and deeper into this hole. And so he tries to get Uriah drunk in verses 12 and 13. Uriah remained in Jerusalem, and that day, the next, verse 13, David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Even drunk, Uriah had more integrity than King David did in this moment. David's, again, panicking at this point. Cover-up number one fails. Cover-up number two fails. And his sin that had begun with deception and conspiracy would soon result in murder because the only option left in King David's mind was, I have to eliminate Uriah. I have to take him out. And their way, that, by, that way, I can take Bathsheba to be my wife and nobody will be the wiser because as one of my wives, of course we're going to sleep together. And if she gets pregnant, it's common. It would be understandable. See, David's so far from the biblical model of confession and repentance that he can't see that one sin is leading to another and another, and they're growing in their heinousness. But man, this is what happens when we get into a cycle of covering up our sins. When we begin to cover up our sin and our guilt with layer after layer after layer after layer of deception and lies, that's point number two for us tonight is this. We need to quit the downward, downward spiral of cover-ups. Quit the downward spiral of cover-ups. I don't know if you've seen the commercial recently of the coach that's giving the halftime speech, right? And he's trying to get his troops all rallied up and he's saying, so what are we going to do? And they're like, we're going to win. He's like, we're going to quit. And they all look at him like he's crazy. What do you mean? He goes, we're going to quit cable. And it's this whole thing about how you should quit cable, right? But we don't think of quitting as a, a good thing in most circumstances. But in this case, quitting is a good thing. We need to quit. We need to leave. We need to abandon the downward spiral of covering up our sin. We need to avoid David's example that he provides here. In John chapter three, verses 20 through 21, it says this, everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light. Why? Lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When we are sinning, when we are harboring unconfessed and unrepentant sin, we don't want to come to the light of God's word and be around God's people for fear that we should be found out to be fraudulent or to be a hypocrite. But the reality is there is never ever a biblical reason to cover up our sin. Never is it God's will for us to cover up our sin. So if your inclination is to hide your sin or to make it go away through deception or worse, you're wrong in that and you need to quit that mentality. The biblical model for dealing with our sins when they're brought to our attention is what? It's confession and repentance. 
confession, agreeing with God that what we've done is wrong, that it is sin, that is, it is something that needs to be put to death in our lives. And then repenting, declaring before the Lord, I'm done with this. I'm not going to do this anymore. It's more than just a change in mind. It's also a change in attitude, a change in behavior. We're to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But that's not our default. Why is it not our default? It's not our default because we fear some things. We fear the exposure of confession and repentance. We fear that in confessing our sin and repenting from our sins, we will be failing expectations. Whether our own expectations or somebody else's expectations in our lives or God's expectations. You know what? We, we fear the cost of confession. That there are going to be consequences when we bring our sin to the light. We fear the broken relationships that might occur because of confession. We fear losing credibility. And really all of this boils down to one primary and chief fear, and that is that we fear man. We fear man more than we fear God, and that's why we cover up our sin. And what we're left with is we're left with a life, like I'm sure David felt eventually, that feels fraudulent and it feels hypocritical because it is. And we're left with a life that feels spiritually dry. And it is because of the unconfessed and unrepented of sin that we're harboring in our lives. We're left with a life that feels like we're distant from the Lord. And, and, and it's true because we've got this barrier that's impeding our fellowship with the Lord because of unconfessed and unrepentant sin. We need to understand that those things, those sins in our life that we're harboring, that we're just covering up, to go out to the backyard, so to speak, and to dig the, the shallow grave or the deep grave and to throw our sins in that and to, to throw the dirt over top and pray that nobody finds out, that's going to be a cancer in our spiritual walk with Christ. So what's the solution? Well, guys, we have an advantage that David didn't have at this time. The solution is the cross. The solution is the cross. The solution is the place wherein every one of our sins was nailed to the tree, was, was punished, was laid upon Christ for us. So that we can be forgiven, so that First John, we can read, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's the hope that we have. We have the cross, we have the gospel, the good news of forgiveness in Christ. And that's the thing that we need to be reminded of when we are in the wake of our sin is we have Christ, we have forgiveness, we have grace at the cross. And so we can come to the light with our sins. We can confess our sins and repent from our sins and not fear that God is going to say, get away from me, you disgust me, or how disappointed I am in you. But God will say, you are forgiven in Christ. But what we do when we choose to cover up is we choose to say, I know that the cross is there, but the cross is not enough for this. God's grace is not enough for this. 
this sin, this attitude, this behavior, this thing that I've done, this thing that I've looked at, this thing that I've said, this relationship that I've broken, it's, it's too much, it's too big for God's grace at the cross. And that's nothing but a lie. And the enemy is rejoicing when you believe that. But instead we can come to the cross. And gentlemen, that's why I, I think we are miserable when we do harbor unconfessed sin in our lives. That weight that you feel over guilt and shame is a weight that I think is a grace of God driving you to the cross. Saying, you want to be free of that? You can be free of that. Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But stop covering it up. Bring it to the place where it's already been dealt with. Bring it to the cross. And see forgiveness from Christ. In Psalm 32, David described the weight that he must have been feeling. I don't know if it was here, but certainly by the time that he, he encounters and interacts with Nathan. Psalm 32, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. What a vivid picture and I'm sure one that all of us can resonate with. But again, I'm, I'm encouraging you and exhorting you to see that, that weight as God's grace in your life driving you to bring your sin to the place where it actually can be dealt with because it already has been dealt with. And that's by confessing it and repenting from it and asking for the forgiveness that you have in Christ because of his accomplished work on the cross for you. Verse 16, Joab was besieging the city. He assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people died. And Uriah the Hittite also died. Just to, to back up, because I, I skipped over this, David, after failing with his first two cover-ups, came up with this other cover-up, hey, I'm gonna kill Uriah. And so he writes this letter to Joab and he puts it in the hand of Uriah. And what Uriah carries to the front is his own death warrant, his own death sentence. And he goes to the front with this letter, again, as a faithful man, not opening up the message that he had been entrusted with. He hands it to Joab. Joab opens it up and it says, hey, you're to put Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the, the, the fiercest. And in fact, you're to put your whole army at risk in an unwise military position, which is what they do. And then you're to, to give a sign that's agreed upon with as many people as you possibly can agree with and fall back and leave Uriah to be killed. I mean, what? What was David thinking as he was writing that letter? He wasn't thinking, right? But, but, but what's more, I, I, I do wonder, was there anything registering with him? This is wrong, David. You shouldn't be doing this. David, stop. Do you realize what, what you're doing? Nothing. And it says in the text, some of the servants of David fell among the people. David's lack of concern for collateral damage is staggering. He's so consumed with saving face. He's so consumed with covering up his sin rather than bringing it before the Lord where I know he was conscious of what it was to be forgiven because he'll, he will later write, how blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. David knew that forgiveness was available and yet because he wanted to save face and because he didn't want to go through the, the pain and the consequences that his sin would would bring to his life, he's now costing the lives, not only just the life of Uriah, but the lives of other soldiers. Bathsheba was not the only widow 
as a result of this plan that David orchestrated here. I mean, imagine it for a moment just today. I'm not going to associate a name with, with the president of the United States, but imagine a president of the United States having a beef with a SEAL team member for whatever reason. I'm going, you know what? I'm going to take that SEAL team and I'm going to put them in enemies, in, in harm's way. I'm the commander in chief. They have to obey what I say. And I'm going to give the order to put them in a position. And then I'm going to, I'm going to let all of them get wiped out and killed because I've got beef against that one guy. That's what David's doing here. Uriah was an Israelite SEAL. He was one of David's top 30 mighty men. David puts him on the front lines and sees that he's killed. In verse 18, then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of, Je yeah, well, that name. Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. I wonder what that guy was thinking. Why would David... What? what? Okay, sure. You're the commander. He's the king. You want me to tell him Uriah is dead? I'll tell him Uriah is dead, but so are a lot of other people. But Joab says, go and, and bring David the news. Guys, David, at this point in time, is no better than Saul. Honestly. I mean, th this is David at the lowest of the low. And you think back to 2 Samuel chapter 3. Do you remember <coughs> Joab's response to Abner? When Abner took revenge against the death of his brother, kind of in a, in a cowardly manner. And David made a grand show of, of saying, this wasn't me. I didn't have anything to do with this. I just want you to know this was wrong. But, but now look at him. But it gets worse. In verse 25, David said to the messenger, thus you shall say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. And encourage him. Do not let this displease you. Sure, I've just made you complicit in the murder of an innocent man. But hey, people die in battle, so cheer up. Rally the troops. Give your halftime speech. Don't lose any sleep and go get them tomorrow. And that's David's message back to Joab. Do not let this thing displease you. Again, how can you have such a cavalier attitude? Because all he cared about was himself. And this was the news he had been waiting for. His problem in his eyes and his mind was done. Uriah's dead. He no longer has to worry about appearances. He no longer has to worry about the fallout from his sin with Bathsheba. Because after the mourning period's over, David says... Hey, Bathsheba, I'm going to be that gracious, kind, loving, compassionate king. I'm going to take you with me. I'm going to care for a widow of Israel. Israel, uh, Bathsheba, why don't you come be my wife? Uh, you can imagine the PR spin that David put on that with people, right? And that's exactly what she does. But here's the problem. Yes, David had covered up his sin in his own eyes, in the eyes of those around him. But there was one whose estimation of him mattered more than any of those. Who later, as he writes Psalm 139, which hopefully you'll get to in your small group time, 
Later, as he writes there, his eyes go to and fro about the whole earth, right? His eyes are the ones that saw David's unformed substance. His eyes and his mind and his knowledge are the ones that know the beginning and the end, the number of hairs on David's head, the, the first day and his last day. His ears are the ones that have heard every word before it's even uttered from the mouth of David. And in his estimation, though David tells Joab, do not let this thing displease you, the final phrase of first or second Samuel chapter 11 is this, but the thing that David had done what displeased the Lord. And that's the estimation that matters. That's the estimation that matters. Our final point tonight is this. We need to view our sin through God's eyes. View your sin through God's eyes. The progression for David, again, gets worse and worse from the, the setting the stage with the decisions that he's making to the actual sin itself, to this downward spiral of cover-ups, to finally telling Joab, hey, you know what? This is no big deal. We're great. This, it's good. We're in the clear. Thinking that a sin is atoned for, and a sin is anything but atoned for at this point in time. Viewing our sin through God's eyes. Too often I feel like we are David. We rush to soothe our guilty conscience too quickly. We're so quick to run to forgiveness and grace that we don't allow the full weight of our sin to rest upon us in such a way as to instill with us a hatred for our sin and an eager desire to put it to death. And so we don't like the guilt we feel, so we distract ourselves. Or we forget that God is omniscient and omnipresent. We feel like, hey, I've covered this up. I'm, I, I got away from it. I got away with it. Maybe we even feel like, man, I got away with it. And you know what? I'm, I'm never going to do this ever again. I'm, I'm done with this. I'm done with it. But we're still not dealing with the guilt of our sin. We rationalize, we promise, we excuse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 it's a familiar verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be what? Sin. What sin? All sin, every sin. I mean, as you read that, make it personal to your life. Your sins, all of them, were put upon Christ at the cross when the full wrath, the Anger of God the Father was poured out upon his son for your sins. It should lead us to what Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. A godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. One of the key factors to godly grief is embracing fully God's view of our sin, of seeing our sin as that which Christ died for. We can't give ourselves a break on the sin in our lives thinking it's no big deal. It's something that's, that's small. And just think, you know what? Christ's death has atoned for all my sins, so that one too. And not give attention to actually confessing it and repenting 
from that sin before the Lord. Does that make me more righteous? No, because 2 Corinthians 5.21, the rest of it says, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. But we can't take that for granted such that we don't deal with the one that we've offended, right? David is the one who will say, against you and you alone have I sinned. We need to deal with God. Yes, we've got Christ. Yes, we've got the cross. But our sin is ugly and detestable and heinous before him. And he is omniscient and omnipresent and knows all things and sees all things and hears all things. So every one of our sins, God has been witness to. How do we do this? How do we cultivate a proper view of our sin? First, spend time in the word at the cross. Thankfully, we've had an opportunity to do that a lot recently. Sunday morning, Saturday nights with Pastor Mike in Luke chapter 23. We've been at the cross. We've been looking at the the death of Christ for us and everything that that meant. But we need to, to spend time at the cross contemplating the punishment that was born for us. I was thinking about it just reading the, the story of, of Abraham and Isaac in our DBR and how much gratitude must have flown out of, yes, Abraham, but also Isaac when all of a sudden God said, stop, I provided for you a, a, a ram. I provided for you a, a lamb to die in place of Isaac. The gratitude that they must have felt that we should have that same gratitude if we have a proper understanding of our sin. We should never be able to get enough of praising God and thanking him for the cross if we have a right understanding of our sins. So spend time in the word at the cross. Spend time in the word considering the the torments of hell. It's not something that we like to do, but it's helpful for us to gain a proper understanding of our sin. This is what our sin merits. The, the, The eternal punishment, the torment day and night forever and ever, the smoke of torment going up forever and ever, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Spend time with good preachers and biblical sermons. Preachers who are not going to let you off the hook. Preachers who are not going to preach to you about your best life now, but about your best life to come and what you need to do to get there. Spend time with good books. If you're a reader and you want to cultivate more of a, a... a godly biblical view of of sin through God's eyes, spend time with the Puritans. John Owen is a great place to go. I'm going to warn you. It's going to be, you're going to be in John Owen longer than Pastor Mike was in Luke, or is going to be in Luke. He's 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 a beast, but he's good. I mean, be, expose yourself to these things, man, so that you can begin to cultivate an intentional pursuit of seeing your sin through God's eyes so that you're not going to be like David going, hey, you know what? This thing doesn't displease me. After all, we got grace. Yes, we do have grace. But just like I said at that first point, let that weight and that guilt drive you to the cross to confess your sin and to repent from your sin. It's going to do wonders for your intimacy with your walk with Christ. It's not ours to be able to wipe away the effects of sin and declare to our souls, don't let this matter displease you. That message can only come from God through Christ on the cross. And thanks be to God that it has. So the fall of David, nothing short of tragic 
but a tragedy that went far beyond the actual act of adultery with Bathsheba or the actual act of conspiracy to commit murder and murder of Uriah. The tragedy is this whole process, this whole progression of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, where David is refusing to bring his sin to the only place that it can be dealt with, and that's into the light through confession and repentance. The only, to the only one that can actually atone for it, who is God himself. So we need to stand guard. If you're there tonight, feeling the weight of your sin, feeling the, the guilt, feeling the, the shame, maybe you have unconfessed sin in your life, let me encourage you, the answer is the cross. If you are a believer, the answer is the cross. It's to come back to the cross and to recognize that I can confess my sin, bring it into the light and repent for my sin because I have been forgiven at the cross. But guys, as, as long as you're holding that back and harboring that and refusing to bring it forward and confess it, you're going to f- struggle to feel a, a, a passion and a closeness and an intimacy with God. You need to deal with your sin. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means that there's a, a barrier between you and him that is unconfessed sin that needs to be brought to light, needs to be dealt with so that you can continue to have fellowship and communion with him in, in a rich way. You know, if you're not there tonight, if you're saying, okay, Pastor PJ, I get this. I, I, I understand confession and repentance and I'm not perfect, but when I find sin, I confess and repent. Praise God, keep doing it. And guard against that progression of sin. Make sure that you're, you're watching your path so that you don't fall prey, so that you don't find yourself on the ground and keep the cross at the forefront of your mind. A fall is never instantaneous. It's always a progression. So let's be vigilant men to watch our steps. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful. Thankful for a text like this. Thankful that you include the warts in the word and not just the, the beautiful people and the beautiful stories and the beautiful passages. And we can learn from these We can learn from David's negative example here what we should do, and that is that we should be quick to come to you in confession and repentance. And God, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the cross that has forgiven us through through Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, that every single one of our sins, past, present, and future, is totally atoned for and forgiven completely. Lord, I pray that you would impress on us the need to come to you with our sin because of that and to confess them, and to know, and to cling to the promise that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God, when we stand before Christ on the final day, which all of us will, believer and unbeliever alike, believer to receive reward, we want to make sure that we don't have a a pile full of wood, hay, and straw that's just going to be burnt up because of sin in our lives. We want to have the, the precious gems and stones and gold that will be refined by the fire through a life lived faithful to you. So Lord, help us be that type of a man. God, I pray that if there are men here tonight who feel distant from you, who are harboring sin that they have not confessed, that they have not brought to light, that they have not repented of, God, I pray that you would lay this this message on, on them specifically in a heavy way such that they would not be able to feel comfort until they've brought their sin to light. If that's for the first time by surrendering to Christ and putting their faith in him as their savior for the first time, God, praise God, may that be the case. If that's just a, a believer who needs to, uh, to confess sin and, and be restored, Lord, I pray that that would take place as well. 
God, make us men who care more about your estimation of us than our estimation of ourselves or this world's estimation of us or any other man's estimation of us. May we be found faithful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.